And the guests at this formal banquet were asked this question. If you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? Of course, everyone was curious as to what Churchill, who was seated next to his beloved Clemmy, they wondered what Churchill would say when it was his turn. When it finally came round to him, Churchill rose and gave his answer, and it is reported that he said this, If I could not be who I am, I would most like to be, and they say he paused here and took his wife's hand and said, Lady Churchill's second husband. (laughs) How great is that? (laughs) Don't you guys wish that you could think of stuff like that? Well, I want to invite you to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue our study on church leadership. Paul's instruction to young Timothy while he pastors the church at Ephesus, a church that finds itself in a great deal of turmoil. And we are now in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we are beginning to pick away at this incredible list of qualities that Paul tells Timothy to hold as the standard for leaders in the church. We've already discussed some weeks ago before Easter, before we took our Easter break, that we used the words bishop and elder and shepherd and pastor really interchangeably. And that's who specifically this passage is addressing. But we've tried to communicate effectively as well that we are particularly using this passage not only to hold the standard of biblical leadership at Fellowship Bible Church, but to be a great challenge to all of the men at Fellowship Bible Church that we would use it as a template for spiritual growth and the minimums of our lives, except for perhaps apt to teach. We'll not worry so much about that one outside of the, the church leadership but that these qualities would be the minimums as a Christian man that would prepare me not only for the potential of Christian leadership, but to simply be the spiritual godly man that God has called us to be, and that as a result, the women of Fellowship Bible Church would be filled with great joy because of the godliness of the men of Fellowship Bible Church. They will follow. It's the way it works. And I wonder if it will come as a surprise to you that as the Apostle Paul digs into this list, he categorizes this list with a title, that is, that because it is a noble office or a noble task or a good work or a high calling, the end of verse 1, he uses the bridge word, therefore, you must be above reproach. That's all the farther we've been, above reproach. Remember that interesting Greek word, nuance in the Greek, of a being above reproach means, technically, not able to be held, as though the police were coming to arrest you and you are not able to be put in handcuffs because there is no evidence showing you have done anything wrong nor does it even exist anywhere. It can't even be rooted or brought up. 
you are above reproach to the degree that you would never be held because everyone knows that guy didn't do anything wrong. That's a great standard. That's the overriding dynamic, that we be above reproach, and now he's going to enter into a list of what it looks like to live a life that's above reproach. And guess what, guys? He goes immediately to our relationship with our wives. Let's read our text, and then we will dig into the passage. This is a a really a pretty interesting phrase that we're going to break down today. And it's not without its controversy or um, debate over what Paul was really calling for here. Let's read Paul's interrupting into Paul's letter of 1 Timothy, marked as chapter 3 in our Bibles. Let's just begin with verse 1 and read a few verses, remind ourselves of what we're talking about here. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer or a bishop or a pastor or an elder or a shepherd must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Isn't that interesting? What a list. At first it's somewhat intimidating, but then when we realize that each one of these dynamics is nothing more than what God, through the call of Christ and the apostles in our New Testament, has called his church to be a pure and a separate people, growing in grace, There's no perfect people out there. There's no elders that aren't growing in all of these areas. But what are the distinctive marks of your lives? How is it that you're living? Particularly as we look at this noble task. Now notice at the end of verse 1, and notice the phrase as I reference, because it's a noble task, he must be above reproach. To be above reproach, he must be the husband of one wife. Let's just camp on that phrase the rest of our time this morning, okay? What's Paul doing here? Why does Paul go right to the elder and his marriage? Why does the Apostle Paul immediately, right off the bat, talk about the elder and his marriage relationship? It's an interesting phrase. To be above reproach, Paul is saying literally... The elder must be the husband of one wife, a one-woman kind of a man. He's going to repeat this phrase in Titus. If you look at the parallel passage, we'll not turn there, but if you look at the parallel passage where when Paul writes young pastor Titus, who was to go to the island of Crete and establish order in the churches there and establish elders to bring order to the churches, he's going to say the same thing to Titus. He must be a one-woman kind of a man. A man of one woman. 
husband of one wife. He's going to repeat it in chapter 3 here as well. Let your eyes fall down to chapter 3, verse 12, where he's addressing the list of qualities for the deacon. And he says the same thing. The two ongoing established leadership roles in the local church are the elder, the pastorate, the bishopry, and the diaconate, the deacons. In both cases, he says right off the bat, they must be the husband of one wife. Well, what is Paul saying here? Let's take just a minute and let's deal with uh, four or five viewpoints that we might be able to take when we run into this passage and see if we can understand exactly what Paul is saying. Let's look at our options. Different Bible students and different commentaries debate exactly what Paul was addressing when he goes to this matter of the elder and his marriage, the husband of one wife. I want you to notice, just as an aside, that this is one of the one of the contextual arguments for the eldership being a male eldership. When the Apostle Paul gives his instruction, it is always given to the men. And we've talked about that, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in the future, but that's just a little clue there, a little contextual evidence. What's Paul saying? Therefore, the overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife. Some people say, argument number one, that this is teaching that he must be married. He must be married. See, when he says the elder has to be the husband of one wife, what he's saying is when you appoint elders in the local church, it has to only be married men. But then when you stop and think about that, you think, I think that the Apostle Paul considered himself to be a pastor. He considered himself to be an elder and a leader in the church, as well as an apostle appointed by God to the Gentiles. And he was single, and not only was he single, but he taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that you could most effectively serve the Lord if you never got married. How's that? Very interesting. If you really want to serve God, never get married. So if you never get married and it's going to limit you from being a leader in the local church, how does that make sense? I'm going to throw that argument out. I don't think that's what it means. One of the things that we talk about sometimes is this. Well, if Jesus came and he wasn't married, would he not be qualified to be an elder at our church? You see? And I think the Apostle Paul is addressing the norm of most men. Most men, as they mature, find themselves in the situation of having been been or, or being married, are married, and have a family. It's just the norm that he's addressing. I really don't think that the point of the passage here as husband of one wife is that it is a requirement for an elder to be married. I think that there are men that God has called to be single or for whatever reason, and uh, they are find themselves single and they could qualify to serve as a bishop, as an elder, or even as a pastor. Argument number two is that what the Apostle Paul is talking about here is that the elder must never be divorced or have been divorced or he must never get divorced. I would say that this is perhaps one of the most common ways of viewing this passage in in kind of our era of church history, that for the last um, hundred years that that's been kind of the traditional stand in our local churches. Often it was uh, held that there's to be no divorce 
There's to be no remarriage. And if anybody has ever been divorced, they are now disqualified from being a deacon or an elder or a bishop or a pastor or an overseer. But what does the Apostle Paul say? He just says he's to be a one-woman kind of a man. And then we think, well, what does the Bible teach about this subject? And isn't it Jesus himself who clearly, in Matthew 19, teaches that divorce can be can be entered into legitimately when fornication has destroyed the foundation of marriage. Jesus taught it himself, except for fornication. That there is a qualifying factor in some cases for divorce, not just for anything. The Apostle Paul himself taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the interesting passage on marriage that I referenced where he called for people to be single like he is, to serve the Lord with greater effectiveness. He clearly permits divorce in the case of desertion by an unsaved partner in the early church. Brand new gospel. The law and the temple sacrifice was behind them. It is now the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that is being taught. Souls are being saved. And the gospel divided families. Jesus himself said that the gospel would divide families. And some lady or guy comes home, husband or a wife comes home from having been at work where one of the new believers in the Jerusalem church witnessed to him, led him to Christ. They begin to live out and follow Christ and they're sitting under the apostles' teaching. And I mean, it just becomes a bad situation at home as maybe their spouse has all their lives been a moon worshiper, a worshiper of Zeus or one of the false gods of Ephesus or one of the cities, wherever they lived. And it just doesn't go well and they never get saved and time goes by and finally they look at the believing spouse and they say, I've had enough, I'm out of here. And Paul says, let them go, you are no longer bound. And releases them from the marriage relationship. All right? Further logical argument tells us this. That if Paul is saying specifically that an elder can never be divorced or a deacon can never have been divorced because that would mean he's not the husband of one wife, that's an erroneous argument. A divorced man who has remarried does not have two wives. A divorced man who has just stayed single is single with no wife and a divorced man who has divorced his wife and remarries has one wife. And so I'm going to throw that one out. I haven't heard the air go out of the room yet. (laughs) Viewpoint number one. He must be married based on this phrase. I don't think so. Viewpoint number two. He can never have been divorced or divorced and remarried. I'm thinking, I don't think that's true either. That's not really what Paul's point is. Thirdly, it forbids marriage after the death of a spouse. That's got to be what it is. If he says you're to be the husband of one wife and then your wife dies and you're a widower, then you're off the elder board because you're no longer the husband of one wife. I think that's erroneous. I I really don't know if that's a straw man in my commentaries that I read and they gave lists of ways that this passage has been interpreted. They all held that argument. I personally have never been around somebody who holds that argument. The Bible is simply too clear that a man who's been married, whose spouse dies, or a woman, have 
all of God's blessing to remarry in the faith. So I think we'll throw that argument out. Another common argument, fourthly, is that Paul is teaching that elders cannot be polygamous. That polygamy was a big deal of the day. Maybe you've heard that. And that when they would go into a new town or a new territory and they were going to plant a church and they led people to Christ and they established the work and it was time to appoint leaders that they had to look through the congregation and find the guys that only had one wife and appoint them to the eldership. Well, I did a little bit more studying on that and guess what? It is fairly common knowledge and very substantiable. Is that a word? Substantiable? You can really substantiate, historically, that it turns out in first century Jewish culture, polygamy was absolutely a non-issue. It was not allowed in first century Jewish culture. Not only that, in Ephesus and in first century Roman culture, there was very little polygamy in these cultural centers like Ephesus. The largest reason for that is that in Rome, first century Roman culture, nobody needed to be married to more than one woman because they could have multiple affairs going on at the same time, and that was totally acceptable. They could have mistresses on the side and have their wife at home with whom to have their children and take care of the house. Also, divorce was so easy and prevalent that many of the people had divorces in their past. So... I don't think that's what Paul's teaching. There would have been a clearer way for him to establish that he couldn't be polygamous. So what is Paul teaching? Here's my take on it, and this is substantiated by reliable Bible teachers today on whose commentaries I lean heavily. He says he must be above reproach the husband of one wife. This in the Greek literally means that he is to be a one-woman man. He is to be a man of one woman. I think that it totally makes sense that when the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy and Titus to appoint leaders in the church, that he needs to find men who have a good marriage and are completely in love with their woman and their their wife, excuse me. Completely, I I meant that. I didn't mean that derogatorily. And uh, totally in love with their wife, who are known for their commitment to their home, their marriage. They're known for their devotion. They're in love with their wife. And they are a one-woman kind of man. Because, think about this, isn't it possible to be married but not be a one-woman kind of a man? Isn't it possible to be, and you maybe know some people like this, maybe, hopefully, outside of the church, where they aren't getting divorced and they may have been married for years, But you always get a funny feeling when you're around them and the way they look at other women and the things that you know they're involved in disqualify them from being characterized as a one-woman kind of a man. I kind of like that phrase. It's a little bit stilted at first, but then I think that's kind of a good thing for a wife to be, you're a one-woman kind of a man and I'm the woman. He's in love with his woman. I believe that is what Paul is teaching. I believe that Paul is teaching that when it comes to appointing leadership in the local church, that as you look across the congregation and you find qualified men and you say they are the very first thing you're supposed to look at is their marriage. Isn't that interesting? 
And you're supposed to find guys that if you ask them, what, who is it you would like to be if you were not yourself, they would say, uh, I'd like to be my wife's second husband. Now, for the rest of our time, let's ask ourselves, why does it make sense that that would be the foundational quality starting into this list on living above reproach, husband of one wife? I found this very simple to follow in my thinking, why Paul would do this. I think that it's difficult to argue any other position when you realize that if Satan has ever used a particular concept or a tool to destroy pastors and destroy elders and to divide churches and to embarrass the gospel. It has been sexual misconduct among among married men in leadership in the local church. You find me a tool that Satan has used to greater effectiveness than that to bring down and embarrass the gospel in our communities. I probably cannot name on both my hands the number of pastors that I know who have at the least had to leave their churches and go to another community to start another church, have been asked by their elders to leave because of sexual, moral impropriety. It's pandemic in our culture. And you need to know that in Ephesus and in this first century world, It was a very lewd and sensual world. We are indeed bombarded on every front with this matter of the sensual, sexual appeal of other people outside of my lawful relationship. And though media makes this just an incredibly difficult problem in our culture and for our young men and our old men alike, In many ways, it was wide open and totally acceptable in Ephesus of this day. And Paul said, Timothy, you start appointing men to the eldership. You make sure they are men who are known for their moral purity, for their love for their wife, and their character and commitment to their home. That makes sense, doesn't it? Makes sense. In fact, I think... If you stop and think about it, we're safe to say, even though the Bible in this list doesn't say it this way, we're safe to say that it is an essential for a spiritual leader, isn't it? Five essential reasons Paul would teach commitment to your wife and your marriage and fidelity as an essential requirement to the eldership. Number one, it is essential for keeping the other qualifications. Think with me, will you? Just let your mind follow through the list. Number one, commitment to my wife as a spiritual leader is essential for me to qualify on the other parts of the list, at least four of them. Look what it says. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled. Is an elder who slips off into the dark to look at pornography a man of self-control? Is an elder who's having an affair on his wife a man of self-control? Absolutely not. Is he respectable? He is absolutely not respectable. You can go get pagans and line them up in the foyer and run the elders who are looking at pornography, who are out of control in their home, who are known for leering at other women and looking inappropriately at other women and are not known for their love for their wife. And the pagans will tell you, that guy's a jerk. And they will not respect your church or your spiritual leadership. 
And you can go down the list and there's at least four. He has to be above reproach. He has to be self-controlled. He has to be respectable. Is a man who's not in love with his wife really managing his home well? And finally, at the end of the list, in verse 7, he says, he must be thought well of by outsiders. I've already illustrated that even the pagans would not think well of him. And so reason number one that I think the Apostle Paul goes after the marriage first for this noble office to be above reproach, he has to be in love with his wife or otherwise he's not even going to meet the other qualifications. Isn't that true? I think that's true. Say, we agree with you, Pastor Van. (laughs) Number two, not only does it help us meet the other qualifications, but number two, it is essential for guarding this church's reputation. It is essential for guarding the reputation of the church. Think about it. I am confident that I could take the microphone around right now and have people raise their hands and tell me the horror stories of the churches and the pastors that have fallen because of sexual impropriety in their leadership and how it damaged the reputation of their community. I know I can do that. I'll bet I can come up with 10 different stories right now in this room this morning if we wanted to hear that garbage. You want to ruin the reputation of the gospel? You want to ruin the reputation of our church and the community? Let it become known that one of our elders has messed around with some kid in Sunday school inappropriately. Let's let it be known that the pastor got fired because of internet pornography. Let it be known that our youth pastor got caught in the woods with some teenage girl. What's that going to do to us? Will destroy us. And our ability to communicate the gospel to a watching world of pagan sinners has everything to do with our purity of life and godliness. And purity of life and godliness is most well protected among our men when they are in love with their wives. You cannot prove me wrong on that point. Thirdly, It is essential for winning over temptation. It is is essential because it is in keeping with the other qualifications. It is essential for guarding the church's reputation. And it is essential for winning over temptation. Let me build it up like this. Imagine having spiritual leadership in the church who had no self-control. That means they are not winning over temptation. That means they do not know how to live within boundaries. That means they do not know how to say no to to the appetites of their flesh. What kind of spiritual leaders would they be? I think that it is in the very fabric of godliness that we can deny ourselves and say no to ungodliness and to live upright and godly lives in this present world, Titus said. One of the very fruits of the Spirit, one of the evidences that God is in me and that the Holy Spirit has rule over my life is what? Self-control. I'm not going to do it, but I was tempted, and we might do it in the future, of taking next next week's message time simply to have a dedicated message on how to win over temptation. I think this is huge. And it's killing our young men. 
our culture and the media and the temptation around us. And so when we appoint elders and we bring them in for an interview, do you know what we ask them? Right to their face. We look them in the eye. We're looking at them closely. And we say, are you, are you inappropriately using the internet or pornography in any way, shape, or form? Do you know when you ask that question by surprise, now it's not going to be a surprise anymore. <laughs> when you ask that question by surprise, you can tell. You can tell. And do you know when you're an elder and you know you're accountable to ask other men that, you keep your own self separated from sin. We ask them, how's your relationship with your wife? If we brought your wife in here, if we brought your wife in here, would she say you're qualified to be an elder? (laughs) I'm not 100% sure what she'd say. (laughs) Well, all of us are fighting for our wives' approval, I think. But clearly, clearly, we have to be above reproach. And that means... Husband of one wife, which means we're winning over temptation. We're not given over to the lust of the flesh. Fourthly, it is essential, I think, for Paul to teach this in this passage, for the limiting of the imagination. This is close to temptation, but for the limiting of the imagination. And I want us to turn in our Bible for just a minute. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Where is the battle for spirituality waged and won or lost. It is in the mind. The battle for spirituality, the battle for godliness, the battle for holy living is waged and won or lost right between your ears, behind your eyes, guys and girls. But my experience is that when a man is godly and authentic and genuine, it's easy for his wife to follow him in godliness. Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know these verses quite well. The ESV says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. What is the key to transforming spiritual power in your life? The key is the mind being yielded over to the will of God through the word of God so that when God looks in in this mess that is between my ears and all that's there, which is wide open before him as though I were naked before him at all times, and he knows every word, that he sees a commitment to the renewing of the mind. So important. What's going on in the imagination? We'll not take time to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 10.5. You can write that down. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Paul says, we bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Wow. What's he talking about? He's talking about the imagination. And that's where our world has become masterful at tripping and triggering the imagination through media sources of all kinds. I have concluded that it is impossible to not have a rigidly controlled world of media in my life and be godly. I don't know if I said that right. I need to rigidly limit the media input in my life if I am going to live a godly life. Otherwise, I'm telling you it's impossible. 
And so if you're glued to the internet and you're glued to social medias and you got all kinds of stuff going on all the time in the media and you're a big time music person and a big time movie person of the world, I'm telling you, you're not living a godly life. It's impossible. You cannot pump that in. At the level we're pumping it in, some of us, we're addicted to our media. You cannot live a a godly life. It's impossible. Why? Because it's bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ that leads to godliness, that leads to the renewing of the mind. That's what it is. Call me a legalist if you want. I'm telling you that there's a reason that Peter said you have to come out from among them and be separate. And you've got to be holy. And that we are aliens and strangers in this world. I think that this has something to do, this point number four, on the reason this is an essential dynamic. You can go back to 1 Timothy 3. The reason this is an essential dynamic for the eldership and for the spiritual leaders of the church, this one woman kind of a man, is because to be that, you ha- it's essential for the limiting of the imagination. This is a huge deal in the mind of God. Do you know that? It is a huge deal in the mind of God. In Exodus 20 and verse 14, we find the seventh commandment. What is it? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Getting involved in sexual relationships outside of my marriage that Satan uses to ruin the church. Where does adultery, what is the seedbed of adultery? It's the imagination. It's the imagination. What is the 10th commandment in chapter 20 of Exodus verse 17? Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Listen, it is impossible to covet without the imagination. And Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, he spoke directly to this cause for the guys who want to say, hey man, I'm a one woman kind of a man and you're looking at garbage at work and you're making jo- off-color jokes about women with, your, with the guys at work and you're talking and you're looking around and you're taking it in and you're pointing stuff out to your buddies at work because you're cool and you're a he-man and you're the man. And Jesus said, I don't care if you don't even lay down with her. I'm telling you that if you lust and you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you have sinned the sin of adultery. Amen. That's powerful. That's convicting. That's overwhelming. That goes straight to the imagination. If you don't control the imagination, you are not a one-woman kind of a man. You see why I think this passage isn't just saying a divorced guy can't be an elder? Because it's possible for some guy to be married and to have an imagination that is sleeping with his neighbor's wife all the time. He's not a one-woman kind of a man. That's That's why we're very careful grow and to watch and to develop spiritually. Number five, and this one speaks for itself. I think that clearly the Apostle Paul at some level must have thought that this was essential because of modeling to the next generation. Modeling for the next generation. Who is it that you look at and say, I'd like to have a marriage like theirs. I hope you can look to the eldership, the diaconate, and say, look at those guys. They've been married 30 years. They've been married 40 years. 
They love each other. They're committed to each other. And what does it do to the next generation when spiritual leaders fall into moral impropriety? It destroys their heart for Jesus. You want to take a bunch of 14, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds and make them hate church? Just expose immoral, sensual, sexual sin among the eldership and they will despise this church. And they will call us hypocrites and they will say, forget it. And they'll go off to college and they'll live like the rest of the world because in their mind they have to have models of what godliness looks like. I think it's kind of a no-brainer that when the Apostle Paul said, we've got this noble task, we've got this high office, and you have to be above reproach. And if you're going to be above reproach, the first thing you better be is wanting to be your wife's second husband. So committed. I believe that's exactly what Paul's talking about. So let's answer one real quick question and then a couple concluding thoughts and we will hopefully end almost on time. Because I suspect that it is in the back of some of your minds that Pastor Van just taught that a divorced guy could be an elder at Fellowship Bible Church. And I think that's what I just taught. I think I just taught that it really doesn't matter how many wives you've had. I mean, it does. Don't get me wrong. But the point is, are you above reproach? And what do people inside the church think about when they look at you and your marriage? And what do people outside the church think about when they look at you and your marriage? And so let me qualify with just a few remarks on this point. First of all, I would say that I do not think that the eldership is forbidden to a divorced, remarried man on this particular point. I do not think that's what Paul was teaching here. And I don't think it breaks down into that point that he's addressing the divorce issue. I do think that the point above reproach in probably eight or nine situations out of ten will disqualify many divorced, remarried guys especially if their divorce happened after salvation. So, number one, I do not think it is forbidden on this particular point. I think the question of above reproach, both inside and outside the church and outside in the community, has to be carefully considered. Number two, I would say on this point that time and testimony are huge factors. You see, when you get into this discussion on divorce and remarriage, every situation is unique. And there's all kinds of things. Well, what about this and what about this? And I would say in general two things. Time and testimony are huge. For example, I think it's way different to look at a guy who's doing really well spiritually, been remarried and doing great, only been married, say, five years, and a guy who's been married 25 years or 30 years, and he's been walking with the Lord and loving that wife, and that's all he's known for. Just a different situation. And his testimony. You got another situation. What about a guy who maybe he's got a family from a first marriage and they live in this community and they don't like his new wife? Well, you got all kinds of situations. And so point number three is this is a very subjective 
matter. How helpful is all that? I think that that equals that we would be very, very cautious. And I think that it also equals that if we ever did appoint a divorced man to the eldership or the diaconate, that we would have to be, it would have to be that when you heard it, you would say, yes, that's a good choice because he's above reproach. Your first thought wouldn't be, oh man, he's divorced. You see? And so it's a qualified thing. Conclusion statement number one. Spiritual leadership in the church begins in the home. Spiritual leadership for the church begins in the home. Point number two. Marital faithfulness to be a one-woman kind of a man is every married man's priority. Not just an elder. Spiritual leadership in the church begins in the home. Point number two. Fidelity being characterized as a one-woman kind of a man, is every man's priority. Let's bow in prayer. Before I close this out, will you begin to search your heart right now? Are you really a one-woman kind of a man? to the degree that you meet the other qualifications, you're above reproach, you're self-controlled, you're respectable. If someone wanted to appoint you to spiritual leadership, would it put the reputation of our church at stake because of your marriage and your record with members of the opposite sex? Have you been winning over temptation? Are you on the victory side of temptation over sin so that you can say, by God's grace, I'm walking in godliness. My mind is being renewed and I am working hard at bringing every thought into the captivity for the obedience of Christ. Take that even deeper into the heart of your imaginations. Are you winning there? Are you limiting, controlling, confessing, forsaking, fighting that world? And what are you modeling to the next generation? Listen, this is one of the things, one of the areas that you can never, ever stop working on. You know, as long as you have life and breath, you have to fight for your fidelity for your commitment, for your love. You have, to, you have to do war with the world and with the flesh and with the devil. Based upon your home, is, there, is your home shaping up to look like you're the kind of guy who we could look at for the eldership? If not, why not? And is there really any other priority in your life that's more important than this? Listen, some of you guys need to go to different stores in the morning for your coffee. Some of you guys need to get your computer out of your office and in a more public place. Some of you guys need to stop using your, your high-end phones 
and go back to a simple phone just so you can use it as a phone and quit looking at other stuff. Some of us need to stop looking at the movies and television we've been watching. You just got to knock it off or you will never win in this area, ever. So, Father, search us and know us. Try us and test us. May your word purify and cleanse us, I pray. May your Holy Spirit convict us. What a difficult challenge this is in so many ways in this world in which we live. Father, our desire would be that that we would be the vessels sanctified and fit for your use, your calling and your bidding. Father, would you cleanse us, forgive us, bless these men in this church to grow in godliness, bless our young men to walk in purity, and may the women of Fellowship Bible Church and the wives of Fellowship Bible Church's heart be bubbling over with joy because of the fidelity of their husbands, and the purity of our homes and marriages, and the Christ-likeness that is being seen on a daily basis. May it be so, in Jesus' name.